0: Have you ever wondered about who was the first female video game designer? Or the origin of Gandalf's sword in Lord of the Rings? These are just two of the topics you'll find us discussing on the Covert Nerd podcast. A podcast which aims to bring out the inner nerd in all of us. Celebrating nerdy topics from the past and the present. Simply go to covertnerd.net for more information or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And until next time, nerd it up. horror hounds and welcome to moose's 13 horrifying days of christmas that's right it's another installment folks i'm your host and gift giver moose my gift for you today is a gift you know what it's a gift of a damn dream job from reverend entertainment i give to you producer writer and director Mr. Justin Beam.
1: Hey, hey, Paul. Thank you for having me on the show, man. Really excited to be here and talk shop today.
0: Oh, I'm really glad to have you here. Because like I said, you you have like the a horror fan's dream job. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the companies that you work with, that's, I mean, there there's Scream, Shout, Fangoria, Horror Hound. I mean famous monsters that's that's insane how did all that start
1: it it is the dream job i am so lucky so grateful to be doing any of this and there isn't a day that goes by that i'm not either thinking about it or it's involved in a conversation with someone where it's like man um I I don't even know what to say about it other than I just feel so incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to do this stuff. And it started years ago. I was, was... Well, there's a couple different jumping points for it. The short story is that years ago, I started writing for Fangoria magazine, and that led me to meeting some different people from around the industry, of course, because I I was a feature writer for them, which grew into Famous Monsters, too. And then from there, as I started meeting people, I formed some relationships and friendships and uh, ended up moving into some other realms in terms of production houses and then ended up getting into a relationship with or, you know, a business relationship with a partner at a company behind the Halloween franchise. And he and I were sort of off to the races as as friends and also as business partners. And then we co-founded a charity together. And within that role at that company, I started growing into everything from merchandise handling into theatrical distribution, international licensing, and new content development and then blu-ray production as well and then that led to shout factory connecting with them they approached me at an event about i don't know 10 years ago and we started talking about if i may be interested in doing stuff with them and i kept writing for magazines over that time but it started it just kept growing on the production side of things and I was learning roles as I was taking them on I didn't I didn't know what I was doing I didn't I was I uh, didn't go to film school or anything like that but I was just working hard and learning and I wanted to learn I still just have this insatiable appetite for every aspect of this and um, each one of these projects offers me a lesson in a litany of things and so that's how i've continued to grow and just working my ass off and 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 teaming up with good people i think is so crucial And i feel very fortunate to be able to do both so that's the short version i've been a writer since i was a little kid and making movies with my buddies in the backyard with rented vhs cameras when we were younger that kind of stuff always a movie hound always loved reading Nonfiction, and the all, I mean, grew up reading Fango, famous monsters, and all that. So that was a tremendous honor to get into those pages eventually, and I've never taken a second of it for granted.
0: So you 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 went from essentially the rest of a super fan to somebody whose work is now in the hands of superfans.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, yeah it's wild because i still have that perspective because i'm still a super fan when something new comes out and i've pre-ordered it or something i i'm the same as anyone else so excited like a puppy at the door for that package to be dropped off and the new release from whatever to show up And, and um i love being so in tune. One of the other things this has offered me is being so in tune with all the different distributors that are really killing it right now and being able to stay on top of all the stuff that's coming out because it's really, this is a golden age right now for this kind of thing. And there's no better time with more releases, more special features being added. Like it's just incredible. And so I get very, very excited about staying on top of everything that everyone's doing. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Being able to create something to hand people, I'm always keeping that in mind. I'm thinking about what I would love to have show up at the door and what would mean the most to me, especially if it's something that I've loved all my life. And I think back to when I was a kid, like when I produced the Big Trouble in Little China set, I was like, as a kid, there's so many stories I wanted to hear behind that. And even as I've grown over time and, keep up with that film there's still so many voices that were missing from that conversation and so when i got the nod from shout factory to do that disc i just went nuts on it and brought in all the people i've been wanting to hear from since i was a kid and who had been sadly neglected and it worked out wonderfully
0: well and that leads to two of the biggest releases from this year that i know were anticipated that you uh worked on that's uh 13 ghosts blu-ray and because i mean it was loaded with extras Mm -hmm. and then the jumbo one that you worked on which i think sold out in a blink of an eye
1: it was pretty crazy Yeah,
0: was the uh friday the 13th set yeah i mean As soon as that was announced, it was everywhere. I mean, people were like, oh my god, gotta have this, want this. And then you look, and yeah, your name's attached to, like, this, you know, this section of the extras. I mean, the Alice Cooper interview, the location set, life and death of Jason Voorhees, the conversation with uh, Amy Steele. I mean... So, we're not talking one thing on this enormous package. It's you, you you're heavily involved. That's kind of surreal,
1: yeah, it was. It was wild because I had been a Friday fan since I was a kid. I fangoria turned that franchise into it really, I remember back in the day that all the Friday coverage was it was tentpole coverage for magazine and for the genre and so the Jason stuff would show up and I remember running body count
0: well and Fangoria even got a spot in Friday so
1: yeah well that was a thing that I thought was crucial and so I I facilitated getting all those all those articles in there I, I, I worked with Fangoria and I was and it was that here we go back to my point earlier I thought as a kid the reason I knew about these movies was because of fango and that that was the through line as they were all being made over the years was Fangoria. so i the got in touch with the team at fango who i know phil and everyone there and and uh and they agreed they're like oh yeah of course you guys and so they they went and scanned all of the related articles from over the years for inclusion here and we got to put them in there because i thought just like with Alice Cooper, this is an essential part of the legacy of this franchise, and it's one that hasn't ever been directly connected with it since the magazine articles came out. You know when the things were happening. So, yeah, that was that was really vital to me. And talking to Tom McLaughlin for it and everything else, it really was it was wild. And I was brought in actually pretty late on that one, on Friday on the box set. They. When they came to me and asked what ideas I had for things, I threw him a list, and here we are. So it was a real honor, a tremendous honor to be a part of that thing. So
0: let's let's look at something. How, let's how does this work? I mean, let's go with Idle Hands. You, you're you're called in to work with Idle Hands. What is the process for start to finish, with brainstorming and finished product? With what goes in? And, you know, as far as finding what you want as extra features.
1: Most of these, like Idle Hands, for example, they're presented to me by Shot Factory. So they'll say, if it's Shot Factory or Paramount or whoever, they'll be like, here's an upcoming title we would like to have you on. Or they'll say, here's a list of titles, which, do you want these? Do you want a couple of these? What do you want? And... That was one that they just presented and said, "Hey, we have Idle Hands coming up. Do you want it?" I said, "Yeah." And then from there, and I usually choose the films that I love. There have been a few that I have taken to them. So we're like Sleepaway Camp, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, those are a couple titles that I took to Shout Factory and helped bring people to the bring everyone to the table on, and that became a deal. But this, but most of the time, like this one here, they just approach me and say do you want it so then I go into creating a list for myself of who I want to have involved knowing the movies if it's one I haven't seen for a while I'll watch it immediately and I make notes and I think about all the people and elements that I want to bring into it and then I start reaching out to the person if I know them or to their management and trying to get things set up I'll have a deadline it's usually I usually have about four months or so on each one of these. Then I start making arrangements for shoots. And right now things are a little bit different because of COVID. There's been a lot more remote shooting through things like Zoom and all of that. But uh, usually I'll have crews. I have crews all over the place, wonderful DPs and audio lighting teams and stuff that I'll schedule out and I'll try to block interviews if they're all in L.A., let's say. And everyone who's involved is willing to travel. Then I will try to schedule them for over the course of two days, let's say. Something like that. And then we tackle the interviews with them that way. Otherwise, there are certainly some people who are out remote. Or they might be on set somewhere shooting something. And so we go to them for those interviews. Commentaries. I will bring people together on the commentary for Idle Hands, for example, I I got Seth Green on board for it and Rodman Flender, the director I had interviewed, too. But then there were the others were brought in by someone else like Devin and Vivica. They came in through another entity. So sometimes it's a little bit of a hybrid like that where someone else helps bring people in. But then from there, I get all the material. I come home with all the drives and whatever, and I cut them together. Or if it's like on Idle Hands, I had my friend Christian who had edited a bunch of stuff for me. He was cutting the pieces together, and then he would send me various – each version of it. And then I would send him notes back and then send me another one. I send him notes back, and we eventually get it to a final product, and then I send it on. And then the studio will review it, whoever's licensed the film to Shout Factory in this case. And then once it's approved, I send them the master file at full resolution, and we're off to the races. Nice. So that's the, that's the short version of the A to Z. <laughs>
0: How did uh, You Can't Kill the Boogeyman come about?
1: That was at the time when I was working for Trancus Films we were at a point where there was supposed to be at that time, a new Halloween movie in theaters and it ended up not happening. And so I was like, well, we need, we need to have something to fill the space. And I thought, why not put John's original back in theaters again? It hadn't been in theaters since it came out, aside from little single one-off showings around, you know, that was always happening. But it had never had a full run back in theaters as a re-release. And so we started looking for a partner to team up with on that to try to facilitate that happening. Because theater chains just were not getting it. I, I'm, we're talking to them and they're just not understanding how a movie from 1978 would make money in this day, <laughs> which is weird. They could see that for Sound of Music. They could see that for what they consider except the classics the classics right but they weren't seeing something like Halloween as a classic finally we found this company screen vision who is in a huge huge number of theaters in the states and they were willing to do it then then we found some international partners and that so it got it ran uh, in the UK main run for the first time ever it had never had a r- actual release there and for it as part of what screen vision was looking for they wanted some additional content and so we i came up with a, do, a little documentary short to run before the film and the original concept for that it was going to be talking to a piece about michael myers and speaking to all the different actors who had played him and them telling their stories from their side of the the camera and everything like that which i thought would be pretty interesting but then after some discussion we transitioned it needed to be something a little wider reaching and so then i wrote like came up with i wrote the script based on the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world and how that translates to michael myers or the shape in the halloween franchise in the u.s and how unique it is here because everywhere else the boogeyman is something that parents are warning their kids, like sort of threatening their kids into good behavior with we're here. Michael Myers is scary, but people are getting tattoos of him. There's, there's stuffed dolls of Michael Myers, there's toys and stuff. So we celebrate the boogeyman here and embrace him. And I thought that was a pretty fascinating aspect to the whole, the whole thing. And so I wrote the piece about that. And so, yeah, I shot that and I, Brought a number of people in for it. And and that ran before the film and all, all around the world, which was like another huge honor to have something. And that was so early for me in my documentary filmmaking. And that was really the beginning of it. It's so rudimentary. And it's never going to see the light of day again. I It's locked in the vaults there, Trankus. But in a way, I'm okay with that because there's so much I would do differently with it now that I wouldn't... I, I'm glad it happened, but I don't mind that it's not out there now. I guess you could say.
0: <laughs> Start a you know do a kill the boogeyman uh, master cut.
1: Yeah right. Well, I wish I could have done more with it. There, like, I uh, we were on such a short time frame, and but I'm very proud that I was able to do that, I'm very proud to have been a part of that release. And that whole release was so special, man. To have that back in theaters, and then to come up with a new poster. There's only two legitimate U.S. at least Halloween theatrical posters, and to be a part of of the second one. And I found this fantastic young artist Austin Hinderleiter to do the artwork for it. I had a contest through the website. I just said through the Halloween movies website, submit if, if you know if you have an idea for halloween poster i would love to see your artwork and people didn't know why we didn't say what it was for but i got all these submissions in and i saw what austin made and i thought "Holy shit this is great and then i called him up i'll never forget the day i called him and it turns out he was just this college kid and he didn't believe me at first almost like really is this real i was like yeah man and then since then, he's—it's so awesome. I'm so proud of him. He's still now—he's doing all these covers for different distributors and poster art for movies, and it all goes back to that theatrical poster for Halloween on that re-release. I just couldn't be more proud of that guy. Nice. It's so cool.
0: Well, and then, I mean, you're not just doing things for the big studios and things like that. I know you were also part of the uh, release tour and everything for the movie Haunt. Yeah. Which yeah w- was an yeah. awesome movie. It, it flew in under the radar, and it's w- well worth the watch.
1: Were you there at the screening that w- that happened the weekend of Midwest Monster Fest? Were you there? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, it was really – that movie – because, okay, I've known it as, as – then you'll remember from that night. I, I've known Scott and Brian for years, and it was, so, it was so neat that they got to have a screening there that coincided with that event, with Midwest Monster Fest happening, and at the IMAX Theater in Davenport. And so, yeah, I was hosting some of the Q and A's at some of the screenings, like in Iowa City. We did at the the new film scene location there, which was this amazing complex of so this nonprofit uh, theater there. And we were the first event that they had at this location, which was so exciting. But yeah, they wanted the producer, and I think other people involved, really wanted to take a bit of a different approach to getting the film out there they did what's called four walling essentially which is where you selectively pick theaters to put the movie in instead of a wide release and they did that and so we did some q a's after some screenings with us and then justin markson who was clown and it went it was really cool and then the film was released on video with kind of a i mean honestly like a whimper the the distributor the company didn't even do a blu-ray release they just threw it on dvd and threw it out and hardly anybody had it in their shelves in the beginning it was really sad and then it landed on shutter and it had a huge impact there but still it's like this is there's so much more to this than this and so i started talking with scott and brian like do you think we can do you think that it that the studio would be okay with us maybe a license like taking this somewhere licensing it so we can get it better distribution and I did take it to a couple places who were concerned that it already was on Shutter, streaming. But then uh, Ronin Flicks, a friend of mine runs that company, they were just all about it. And they're huge fans of the film, and they were so pumped. And so it found the perfect home at Ronin. Luckily, the studio who made Haunt was cool with it, having this deal, you know, being distributed that way. And then Scott, Brian, and I went nuts on creating content for the thing and they brought in their first movie from when they were kids we had multiple commentaries i interviewed just about the whole cast and some of the crew including scott and brian um who i interviewed at the haunt in moline where they used to go when they were kids and that haunt was based on i found that this haunted attraction there is still open yeah and and even though we were in the off season i I guess this one is open all year round, but so I, I got permission from those folks at the haunted attraction to shoot there. And so we I shot Scott and Brian and a couple of the cast members there. And then I cut this like half an hour long documentary out of all of it. And then one of the really neat elements too, Tom and Andy did the score for that thing. And I've been a Tom and Andy fan since, geez, back when I was a kid, and I I encountered them with a movie called Killing Zoe, which was written by Quentin Tarantino. Really awesome movie. I love their score for that, though. And at the time, it was revolutionary, because I hadn't heard much of anything like what they were doing. And they did the score for Haunt. Well, Well, I reached out to them and started interacting, and Andy Milligan agreed to an interview for the thing, which is cool and very rare. And then... It talk, turned to, well, what if we had a second disc? What if we have a, a, that score, which had never been released anywhere? What if we had that on this set? And then that came together. Andy, the, Tom and Andy were so cool with it. They're like, oh, yeah, let's do it. Put it in there. They weren't asking for money. They just wanted it to be included. And so with the box set version of that, the full box, there's a second disc that is that soundtrack that's never been or never will be released anywhere else which is such a huge, awesome honor of a thing. So that came together nicely, and in the end, Scott and Brian got to have their movie released how it should have been in the beginning.
0: Oh, yeah. And the uh, four-wall press tour was probably the best idea. Releasing it, you know, widespread in theaters, I don't think it would have gotten the reception that it should have. You know, when you're doing target audiences, you know they like horror movies. So yeah. when, when you're putting a horror movie in front of horror fans, th- that's your moneymaker right there. You're not rolling the dice too much. So that's probably the smartest thing they could have done yeah. was said, Hey, we know our audience. We know our product. Let's get the product and the audience together at the same time.
1: Yeah. That's how it used to be done. I mean, years ago, that's how it, so many movies were made the rounds, and that's how... Even Halloween, that's really how that began with Halloween. It wasn't a wide-release picture. It's just word-of-mouth grew after a, a four-wall screening, and then it became what it's become. So you, you never know. And I think you're right. That's a really... I, I hadn't considered that, but it's so right that when you have a an audience that is that can be pinpointed like that, I think that you're serving them in a special way doing it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not like you know, rom-coms and things like that where you can appeal to just about everybody. Mm -hmm. Horror is... I mean, mean, horror has a pretty niche fan base. A large fan base. But if you like horror, you like horror. And getting good horror into theaters without having it be, you know, the -the over-the-top blockbuster or stuff like that seems to be really tricky these days. So, yeah, Yeah. when you can take a movie that's as good as Haunt and just say, alright, we're going to screen this in front of these fans who are already at a horror convention or are hell in town for a horror convention, Mm -hmm. you know they're already hyped up. And they're going to really enjoy the extra effort that you put in to bring them something different.
1: Absolutely. And, and I, I think that a lot of other conventions have figured that out too. And that's been one of the most exciting things that I've seen growing more and more over the last 10 years. The film film festivals being built into or running concurrently with fan conventions. Because it is. It's, this, it's the same audience. It's exactly who you want to be to be going to see these movies. And I love all of the independent stuff people are getting exposed to at these convention film festivals. Oh yeah. I I, just, I I love it.
0: Since, uh, starting my podcast, I've become a, a, I'd say a standard bearer for the, uh, independent film scene. Um, I, I really like and encourage the independent filmmakers because i mean they're out doing the thing you know Mm -hmm. and some of them are really good and you just they don't get enough eyes on their product
1: to you know get the recognition they deserve yeah i agree it's it's hard it's hard for them to find an avenue to a larger audience but these things really facilitate that and the more like you talking about stuff on your show and championing these folks that that is a complete game changer because the independent filmmaker now more than ever it can be hard on a grand scale to be seen but at the same time now more than ever there are festivals coast to coast in this country and i think it's a it's an incredible opportunity at this moment for filmmakers to be doing something and, and have an audience in front of it like never before
0: so yeah, it is definitely the independence time to shine. Now it's mm-hmm. getting the word out for that product to shine because yeah. they don't they don't get the coverage that like, okay, next year there's a slew of horror movies coming out in theaters. I figure I, I think it's like eleven horror yeah. movies coming out. Behind those 11 mainstream horror movies, which, don't get me wrong, I'm ecstatic to see, there's probably at least 50 independent horror movies coming out at the same time that won't get a lick of coverage. Mm -hmm. That can be just as good.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's a damn shame.
1: Well, there are, I think, coupled with all of this is where we have now websites and blogs and a lot of because it used to be big media was the only media that that the large audience would have access to. There were always zines and, uh, uh, you know, traded posts kind of things through the mail mail sheet like update sheets for indie film and horror stuff that that kind of stuff you'd find advertised for in the back like in the classified section in Fangoria or one of these magazines and so people have always been trading that but there's never been a time before where people had access to things so directly that where things were getting this kind of attention and the There are lots of podcasts as well that are giving coverage to movies that people might not have heard of. So if what I always say, there are people who complain that horror is dead or it's just all remakes now, which is not true, or it's blah, blah, blah. You know, the movies aren't made like they used to be. Well, they are. There's actually probably more of them being made now than ever before. It's just a matter of finding it.
0: So you're just not looking.
1: Well, yeah. The be- and, and the best resources are to listen to these shows like yours, to go to film festivals. And right now in the pandemic, it's it's easier than ever because a lot of these film festivals have moved their events online. So you're paying a fee, which is less than it would have been in person in most cases. And you get to be in the comfort of your home watching it. Granted, it's not the experience, but... Also, many of these are including the same Q&As, Q&A sessions afterwards. So it's still happening. It's out there. It's just a matter of tapping into it.
0: It's oh, yeah. an exciting
1: time if if you tap into it.
0: Say there was one uh, a few months ago. I think it was down in Texas. Uh, it was online for the weekend. I paid 25 bucks for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Hell, I watched 15 films.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: yeah you know, I mean twenty five bucks for fifteen movies, yeah, sign me up yeah yeah you know, that's a good weekend
1: <laughs> absolutely and you're gonna be the other great thing is that you're gonna be exposed to stuff that you and that's not to say people would be biased or something, but I think naturally some people are more or less inclined to see something if they read a description or Whatever, but or if it's international, maybe folks might not have to open themselves up to things before. But if you go to a film festival, usually you're just paying for a ticket for a day, yeah. And you sit in that theater, and I and you're going to see things that you might not have ever exposed yourself to before. You're going to see international voices. You're going to see maybe even animated things, some music videos. Most of these festivals bring in all sorts of types of films, subgenres, and everything. That's the most exciting thing for me is because we do tend to fall into viewing habits, whatever they are, if it's seasonal, if it's emotional, if it's franchise or whatever it might be. We want more, but sometimes we don't think to step outside our comfort zone with what we're taking time to view, where a film festival really keeps you held captive in a way, puts you in a room, puts a screen in front of you, and they just spend the day hitting play on stuff. Yeah, and that's a remarkable way to to expand our horizons.
0: So before I uh, wrap this up, since you have the dream job, I am curious: Do you have a dream interview you would like to tackle? You know, just that one person that you haven't been able to work with that you really want to, you know, just sit down and do something with.
1: Uh, well, I did. I okay, man. There's so many. <laughs> they come to mind but there's one that i guess you could say the one that got away it really wasn't one i mean kind of when i was doing what the willard blu-ray the willard remake with crispin glover i'm a huge crispin glover fan years prior for fangoria i had done a huge that ran over two issues It of massive career retrospective interview with crispin and that remains one of my absolute favorite experiences from all of this stuff. And he, he was so great and so open. And we talked for hours and hours. And I always treasured that. But when it came time, when I got hired for Willard, which is a movie I absolutely treasure, and I have from the beginning, I really, really wanted to do a documentary on Crispin, not just about Willard and his involvement with that film, but I really wanted to do a documentary that was just about him and about his whole career, basically turned that article into a documentary. And I and, and he was on board for it. And so and I, I got his dad, Bruce, who's an absolute legend, and one of the best social media followers you could ever have. I was having conversations with Bruce, but Crispin was overseas. And in the process of some real estate deals, he owns a castle overseas. And I can't remember where it is, Hungary or something like that. And he was buying more real estate there, and so he was over there kind of stuck at the time until this deal was done. And we were getting down to the deadline, and he kept saying, no, I'll be back, and it was around Christmas a couple of years ago. And it just, in, in the end, he couldn't get back from there in time to be able to do it, even though he was on board. And that remains such a disappointment for me just because I he is someone who is so unique and so incredibly supernaturally focused on his, on his art that I think he needs to have his story really told. An article is great, but now that's relegated to the vaults of a magazine. No one's, I mean, not no one, very few people are buying magazine back issues to research, like an interview with someone, you know? I'm sure there are online means to get them to, but whereas this could be something that stands the rest of time, would involve his dad and all these other people that I was bringing into it. So that's one that I wish would have happened for sure. But frankly, I, I've been so lucky to talk to through either for video releases, documentaries, or for articles for print. I've been lucky to talk to just about everyone that I've wanted to, or I'm in the process of approaching talking to them now. I have some insane interviews coming up in the next few weeks here for titles that haven't been released that I'm pinch I'm just like, how is this my life? It's so crazy. Um yeah, so, yeah, I guess that'd be my answer. I mean, I really, I would love to, a living person, I would love to have gotten that documentary made on Crispin, I guess.
0: Well, it'd be really fun because, and, and, and I mean this with all respect and everything towards uh, Crispin, he is one of the oddest actors and he plays odd and creepy so well. That just to dive into that and like you know peel back and get into that a little bit more would be a fascinating watch.
1: Yeah, yeah. He has I mean his music, the movies that he's making himself are also fascinating and unique. And then his lifelong partnership with his dad. Yeah, and I mean just through to. I I don't know. I mean, I could go on and on, but there are very few people who are genuine enigmas who shy away from the media, who aren't overexposed in that way, whose personal lives are basically a mystery and whose motivation behind what they do is pretty much clouded. Now, he does these screening events that are are hours long. He'll show one or two of his films, usually two of them back to back, and then he'll do a reading from one of his books that he's written which his books are fascinating. And then he'll uh, sign autographs for as long as it takes to get through every single person in the audience. And, and so these are full four-hour evenings with Crispin that you can have if, at one of these things. But he's And he's talking about his work. He's talking about... but But still, it's just the scratching of the surface. That's the only way he really makes himself available is if you go to a place to see him in person. Oh, yeah. And you're willing to dedicate an entire evening to him. But there's just layers and layers there beyond that. And I know people who work on his films with him. And the stories behind them are so fascinating. And I would just love for them to see the light of day someday.
0: So where can uh, listeners keep up with all of your... All the irons that you have in the fire?
1: Well, I appreciate you asking. You can... I'm on social media, and my name is Justin Beam, bEAHM. Also um, justinbeam.com is my site where I post about upcoming releases. When stuff comes out, I put things up. Um, I also have a podcast, the Radio Hour Radio Hour podcast. You can find that on all platforms. Just look for my name on there. And that's the podcast is something it's really I, I fit it in when I can. It's kinda hard with my schedule. But I've had some awesome guests on there. Like um well, I've I've had some been very fortunate in that realm as well, and some great guests. And those are more open, laid back conversations that don't have to fit within a certain prescribed time frame like a lot of these documentary things, these discs do. So A lot of side roads are explored in those conversations. So those are the ways that you can find me. And and, um, you can reach me at justin at com if you want to directly reach out. I love having conversations with folks about things that they're watching, reading. If there's uh, titles that they would love to see come out or questions about things that have come out, I'm I'm an open book and happy to talk anytime.
0: That's nice to hear. I mean... Hearing people say that, that they uh, like to talk about the stuff coming out and are willing to talk about their uh, work is refreshing.
1: I mean, I thrive on conversations with people. That's what my whole life has been about. All my career is about that. I I mean, I've, I love hearing from anyone who's who wants to strike up a conversation. So I'm here, whether it's through social media, email, or whatever. Yeah, hit me up.
0: And listeners... You'll be able to follow the links in the episode description to make it easy. And you can find me and other great podcasters at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at MooseMediaInc. Justin, I want to thank you for stopping by and hanging out today. It's been fun and lightning learning about your dream job and, I mean, how we barely scratched the surface
1: yeah thank you for having me on i appreciate you reaching out including me it's been a really awesome conversation and i'm always here if you want to chat some more
0: i look forward to having you on again sometime and until next time horror hounds mash on i hope
1: you enjoyed today's episode and you don't lose that spirit Come back
0: tomorrow for another of Muse's 13 horrifying days of Christmas. Or Krampus will come for your soul.